consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. On April 23rd, 1992, Astronomers announced that the COBE satellite had discovered ripples in the leftover microwave light from the Big Bang. George Smoot, the chief scientist of the project who won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery, said at the press conference, quote, We have observed the oldest and largest structures ever seen in the universe. These were the primordial seeds of modern-day structures such as galaxies and clusters of galaxies and so on. If you're religious, it's like seeing the face of God. End quote. Six days later, on April 29th of 1992, a major riot engulfed the city of Los Angeles as a result of a jury's decision to acquit four police officers on trial for their beating motorist Rodney King in March of that same year. From a nearby apartment balcony, a bystander, George Holliday, captured on videotape the officer's horrific maltreatment of King and sent the recording to a local Los Angeles TV station, KTLA. Images of Mr. King's marred face, swollen and cut from the officer's repeated blows and kicks to his head, also haunted our newspapers and TV screens. Might King's face also remind us of what it might be like to look into the face of God as well? The not guilty verdict ignited a terrible conflagration within the City of Angels, the ripples of which still haunt our culture today. There have been numerous violent and tragic clashes, several of them fatal, between police and individuals, many between white police officers and African Americans. These incidents have been caught on cell phone videos and posted on social media. The videos end up going viral, being seen by millions of people around the world and they quickly make the headlines. And more recently, also making headlines, are the horrific mass shootings, one here in Texas that claimed the lives of 19 school children and two adults. What, if anything, connects the majesty of the heavens to the often horrifically tragic events of our existence on Earth?
The jarring juxtaposition of the L.A. riots over and against the Kobe satellite findings is something I ran across in a book called The Tyranny of Science. It is by 20th century philosopher of science Paul Feyerabend. He asks his audience to, quote, compare the two kinds of events. On the one side, there is great and exciting discovery, affecting, so it seems, all of humankind. On the other side, war, murder, cruelty. Is there a connection? Is there a way of making sense of both? Is there a way of using the products of our curiosity and our intelligence to influence, attenuate, redirect our base instincts? Or do we have to concede that history is a crazy quilt of happenings which have nothing in common and that human nature is a kind of shopping bag containing disparate commodities, some divine, others monstrous with no connection between them. Fire Robin struggles somewhat to find the connection, but ends up proposing the notion that fairy tales have something to do with the answer. Quote, I am not a scholar, he says. I know a little scandal here, a little idea there, and out of that I construct my stories. Strictly speaking, my lectures will be fairy tales, woven around events that are vaguely historical. That does not really worry me, for I have the suspicion that real scholars also tell fairy tales. Only, their fairy tales are longer and much more complicated. Which does not mean they cannot be very interesting. My fairy tale starts with a question. Was there ever a connection between the majestic events in the heavens and the sad and often silly events on the earth? End quote. Centuries ago, witnesses testified to the maltreatment of another king who had also been beaten and mocked by the authorities. The Gospel of John records how the Lord Jesus Christ gives himself over to the diabolical machinations of the crowd. Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! John writes. Shall I crucify your king? Pontius Pilate asks. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. The Roman guard soon crowned Jesus with a mocking crown, as well as pierced his hands and feet. Matthew records that they, quote, stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail! king of the Jews, the very one who said, let there be light in the book of Genesis, the one who created the entirety of the heavens and the earth, allowed himself to be handed over to the powers of darkness, to be beaten and crucified. The, quote, face of God, end quote, I believe, is symbolically represented in both the primordial light of the early universe and in the battered visage of the late Rodney King. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The majestic events in the heavens included Jesus' descent into our world, his emptying of himself for our sakes. Like Rodney King, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the light of the world who made the light discovered by the Kobe satellite, 
was himself stricken, smitten, and afflicted by agents of the state, scourged, marred beyond recognition for our sin, for all the sad and often silly things which separate us from God. Of course, none of this fully explains why God has permitted such tragedies to occur. Even Jesus himself cried from the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At times, we all experience something like this forsakenness. But though weeping may endure for a night, the Bible says, joy comes in the morning. Our suffering and sorrow is temporal. Christ has overcome sin, death, and hell. What God has revealed to us is that he has participated with us in our sorrows and suffering and is with us through our sorrows and suffering. In this world, we will have trouble, Jesus says, but he also reminds us to be of good cheer. He has overcome the world and all of its troubles. The creator of the cosmos took upon himself the prophetic name of the man of sorrows. God became flesh and lived among us. He bids those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. On part two of our conversation with astrophysicist Dr. Jeff Swearink, we further discuss the connections between modern cosmology, God, and the Christian faith. What does cosmology have to do with Jesus? And how can a deeper appreciation and understanding of the heavens encourage, and strengthen us in our faith today. As we begin part two, I ask Jeff about how secular scientists today ascribe causal powers to the physical universe. Do you know who Alan Lightman is? He's an MIT, um, I don't know if he's a cosmologist or a theoretical physicist. He's at M- I know the name because he wrote a very popular book that's yeah. very important in my, my area of physics. <laughs> he's, uh, he's quite a polymath. We had him on the book club last year. A wonderful gentleman, super smart, uh, an atheist. Um, and I had the opportunity to, I mean, very gracious, and he's a super guy. I asked Dr. Lightman, I said, uh, do you believe that the laws that govern our universe, the, the, you know, this idea of, of laws as governance, um, do, they, do they have causal powers? And this is always a question that has intrigued me as a layperson, Jeff, that, that when you do not invoke God for the ultimate reasons for why we, we have the universe, whatever the mechanisms that God used are. But when you, when you exclude him from the universe, what, what seems to me to happen is something not unlike uh, ancient Near Eastern cosmology, where the ontology of the gods was, if you named a god, basically you described his function. So the solar deity, he had a name, and, but his existence was predicated upon what he did. So, so the, the ancient Near Eastern cults, Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, the Sumerians, the, this was all the same across the board in the, you know, the, the neighbors of Israel in the Old Testament. But they assigned a name to a deity to describe, basically describe its function. That's the solar god. That's the lunar god. That's the star god. And it struck me as I'm, as I'm reading your book, the, the parallel here, that we eliminate God, eliminate supernatural, because in the ancient Near East, there was no natural, supernatural distinction. It was all sort of pantheistic, panpsychic, if you will. You, you'd mentioned uh, one of the individuals who has a pan, uh, 
the atheist philosopher uh, Thomas Nagel. You'd mentioned panpsychism, his idea that uh, the universe is impregnated with mind in, in all over the place. But I, I was struck by this in, in modern theoretical physics where people do not acknowledge God and are in fact like Stephen Hawking trying to get rid of God. It seems like when you name things, and I'm not saying that these things don't exist, I'm just saying in the naming and the nomenclature of things, protons, neutrons, electrons, strong nuclear force, whatever we're, whatever we're naming, muons and gluons and bosons, that, that we're assigning a function to them and that we are assuming that these things operate, that, as Paul Davies says, I think you quote him in your book, as self-sustaining or self-generating or self uh, uh, that, that they have internally within them, these things have their own internal causal powers. In other words, an atom can do this to that, uh, a proton can do this, an electron can do that. And apart from God, these things kind of seemed to me almost like ancient Near Eastern deities where they're doing their own thing, this atom over here and this atom over here. Now, I'm not saying that 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 makes the theories untrue. I think there are atoms and electrons and everything, but we named them, right? And so I I wonder, I wanted to get your opinion about this idea of laws or mathematics or forces having causal powers, almost like uh, God. How would you, I I know we've talked about how this is sort of an overlap, and I don't want to make a false distinction, but in terms of causality without God, um, how do you see that these wonderful discoveries of physics, are they, what is actually doing the power? Where, where's the power if God's not sustaining and creating and doing all this stuff? Where is the, in, where is the power in, in secular theories? What's doing the work? In other words, does that make sense? I think so. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating as I was thinking about, you know, particularly about, uh, you know, Lawrence Krauss' book, Universe from Nothing, and, uh, you know, Valenkin's Many Worlds in One, you got Hawking's, uh, you know, and and one of the things that I found fascinating is that, uh, you know, Lawrence Krauss, uh, you know, he spends the first couple of chapters talking about how uh, science, science is what can tell us what's going on. Philosophy, theology, they may have had their day, but they're kind of, uh, I think he basically says they're worthless at this point. Yeah. In yeah. Um, you know, and then he comes along and says, okay, this is the way things work. You've got this quantum vacuum in the existence where not, where nothing exists. This, this quantum vacuum can bring things into existence. Uh, you know, Hawking is a little more direct. You know, he starts off his book, Philosophy is Dead, God right. is Stupid, you know, and goes along and says, you know, given something, given the laws of, given a law of gravity, uh, the universe will pop into existence. And I found that interesting because the whole premise of these books was starting from nothing, we're going to get, we're going to explain where we are without having a necessary being or necessary entity. And lo and behold, in both instances, Krauss and Hawking, and again, you know, Krauss is, you know, taking Vilenkin's idea and, and putting some philosophy on there that I don't think Vilenkin was. But both of them end up with something that where the laws of physics had been descriptive of the stuff that was here for the vast majority of science, it has now been, the laws of physics have now become prescriptive of what's going to happen. And it's a very subtle philosophical change in the way it's talked about, but it's a monumental change in terms of how we think about it. Because now, you know, I got to just thinking, okay, let's just, let's just say this laws of physics, whatever it is, is responsible for everything. Uh, so now it's got causal powers. You know, that, right. that's, you know, the laws of physics aren't these nice middle mathematical things I write on the wall. I write them on the wall and they actually do things. <laughs> right. Right. But 
you also have to have this scenario. The, the laws of physics have to be eternal because if they had a beginning, you've just now kicked the can down the road. You have to explain why the laws of physics came into existence. So they have to be eternal or, or self-caused, if you will. That's really what you need to get around another beginning. They're self-caused. They have causative powers. Um, and, you know, and this is where I like to throw in the discussion about consciousness, because, you know, there's this idea that we're going to explain consciousness. But, you know, I find it that's where I thought Thomas Nagel was intriguing. You know, here's someone who doesn't have any sympathy towards Christianity or, or religious explanations. But he's saying, hey, our explanations of consciousness with an evolutionary background just are inadequate. They, right. It seems like the only way to solve this is to start with consciousness, well, that means that these laws of physics now have to be self-existent, causative, conscious. That's starting to sound a whole lot like the God of the Bible. Right, right. The point you were making that we're saying we're getting away from God, but we're look what we are saying looks a lot like God. And, That's and I remember, correct. yeah, I, I remember a fast or a discussion I had with my dad uh, back in the eighties. And this was when Stephen Jay Gould was coming, you know, very prominent and, uh, you know, he introduced his punctuated equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And I was having this discussion with my dad and I forgot which of us said it, you know, but he said, you know, in some sense, this looks a lot like creation, if you will, because <laughs> things go along for a while and then boom, you've got new things. And it. they go along for a while. It's like, You've put a different term of different language on it, but it looks a lot like what the Bible's describing in the creation. That's right, Jeff. I, one of my popular, I use that very example sometimes in my own presentations. Uh, Dr. Carl Sagan, late Carl Sagan, you know, um, I had the wonderful opportunity of talking to his daughter a couple of years ago. Lovely person. And, her, you know, she described dad from a dad perspective, you know, Carl, Carl the dad that we, we don't often understand or see. But we, we talked a little bit about, or I, I, I've been fascinated with Carl Sagan. And ever since I was a kid, he was integral in getting me interested in astronomy. I wasn't raised a Christian, but I was fascinated with cosmos. I was 12, but I'm like, he's saying something really interesting, but I loved the, the, the visuals in cosmos in the 1980s. It was just fan, phenomenal. It's, you know, it's VHS tape stuff now, but, <laughs> but uh, in the book, he has exactly what you said just a minute ago there, Jeff, that, that um, 100 million years ago, these appeared. Uh, 200 million years ago, these evolved. And he's using these these ambiguous verbs to describe. And now he's granted to be to be fair, he's just trying to condense evolution in a paragraph. But still, the language was very reminiscent of of Genesis on on day. You know, then God said, and then these appeared. Well, then Carl said, and then these evolved, and and then Carl said, and then these appeared, or they they popped onto the scene, or something. Where we get this terminology, and what's inserted to kind of explain it as the mechanism really um, is kind of time. And so, so in general here, we, as you just said, we, we think we're getting away from God. But when you look at it, I mean, what we're ascribing to, to natural selection or evolution or even the origin of the universe sometimes in, in secular uh, ideologies and theories about things is that we are assigning godlike properties to time and to things that are, that are inanimate. I wanted to read the quote from um, Nagel. Uh, because it touches exactly on what we're saying uh, in, in greater detail. Nagel argues for panpsychism. This is from uh, your book, one, page 148. Panpsychism literally means everything has a mind. Philosophically speaking, it conveys the idea that mentality uh, 
is fundamental and ubiquitous in the natural world. In other words, panpsychism contends that the very fabric of the universe has a consciousness about it. And um, I've been concordantly preparing for another interview I'm doing next week, um, reading this book. This is where I'm getting the ancient Near Eastern thought and the Old Testament. And so I'm concordantly reading your book and this book, and it just kind of hits me that, well, wait a minute. This sounds exactly like Babylonians and Sumerians, that everything – there was no natural supernatural distinction. The whole world was infused with – with you know the sun god was in the sun the trees or that 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 pantheism panentheism or panpsychism the idea that it, it just doesn't seem like we can escape the mind we're not we're not only trying to escape the beginning we're actually reverting back to ancient mythological paganism it would seem in a lot of ways though people i i don't want to be too cheeky about that and 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 but but it does seem like the ideas as ecclesiastes says that they're really fundamentally isn't anything new. We've just kind of shifted a perspective. So it seems like if we can't assign causal power to God, that we must assign God's attributes to the creation itself. Um, and from a biblical perspective, I think that's what we're... Do you, do you, do you think that's what you're seeing in the sciences, that people, people taking God's attributes and applying them uh, to the physical universe itself? Is that, I mean, unconsciously or consciously, do you see that as, as something that, that what, what's going on in the sciences? Well, it, it, I mean, it, at least when we're talking about the ultimate cause of reality, it seems like that's what's going on. I mean, that's what Hawking and Krauss seem to be doing is they're saying, all right, there's this thing that we're going to, you know, we can describe mathematically, but this is this is the function of this thing. And this thing brings our universe into existence without any need for God. But, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to either one, but it's like, I wonder, do they recognize? Well, I, I know Krauss said, you know, I can't, I cannot draw a distinction here between a deistic God and, you know, what I'm saying here. You know, so I know, I know he, he sees that connection, um, but he just is basically saying, no, you know, eventually science is, it seems like the, the argument is eventually science will show that connection will no longer even be valid. Um, but to me, in part, this provides great evidence to me of the truth of Christianity. Because, you know, as I've been, uh, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been interested in science for a long time. I've thought about how science and Christianity intersect. And and even once I started becoming an apologist and thinking about how do I talk about, how, how do I understand and find the evidence and see is there evidence for science and Christianity intersecting? One of the things I recognized uh, is that, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been trained as an apologist. If you came out and directly asked me, of course, science and Christianity agree. Yet I found that every time a new discovery came out, I was anxious about it. And I'm sitting there and it's like, you know, I, I've you know, noticed this and then finally recognize the pattern. And I finally just sit back. It's like, why am I getting anxious? You know, they're discovering this Martian meteorite that appears to have life or this about evolution or, you know, something about Big Bang. And I'm like, why am I getting anxious about this? And, and it, it allowed me to step back and think, what, what's my mind? What's my mental process? And what I'm thinking is, perhaps this is the discovery that's going to show Christianity is incorrect. Mm. I'm like, well, wait a second. If God is who he says he is, that discovery is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so because, you know, essentially what Christianity says is that there is a God who created everything there is. He's the author of creation. He's revealed himself in creation. And then he's also the inspiration for scripture where he reveals himself through scripture. And if God is who he says he is, those two revelations are never going to disagree. 
Right. I'm like, oh, so. What a relief. What a relief. When you have people who say, wait a second, I can go out and study this physical universe and show that God doesn't exist, which is what the, the atheist scientist is trying, you know, it, if it, that's what they're, some of them have explicitly stated, that's what they're trying to do. I can go out and say, all right, you know, go study away because mm. as we genuinely pursue the truth, what we find in this scientific realm is going to point back to what God has revealed through scripture. Yes. And so yes. when people use, Hey, these laws of physics create the universe. They're saying the same thing, just with different terminology. They're saying what scripture said all along. And so part of my job as an apologist is not really to go out and say, Ooh, your, your way of looking at science is wrong. It's like, say, Hey, this is what Christianity has to say. Yeah, and yeah. I think as Christians, we need to give a, we need to become a lot more educated uh, about how God works in creation, because there's this general notion out there that if I can explain it, explain it with the laws of physics, then God's not involved. And right. that's nothing like what Christianity is. No, about. not at all. I, I use the analogy of uh, uh, if you can explain the mechanics of how a car works, that doesn't do away with the people who designed it. It's just two different ways of explaining something. I can explain in a personal sense why there's coffee on the table, and I can also explain in a scientific sense uh, the way in which coffee beans grow and how you use a coffee maker and all this stuff. But it, but the mechanical explanations uh, don't rule out agency by any stretch of the means. But uh, that seems to be a modern conception in, in a lot of people's minds, especially skeptics who think, oh, we have a physical explanation that rules out a personal explanation. But that's a non sequitur. It just doesn't do that. I was just – I don't know how recent the clip is, but um, you know of Justin Brierley on Unbelievable. Um, he he I, I, don't, I think this was fairly recent. He uh, had um, Richard Dawkins and uh, Francis Collins together for a discussion. And uh, Dr. Dawkins had said something – and I haven't seen the whole context of the video, so I, I want to be as charitable as I can. But he said something really remarkable that I've seen happen – um, in Q&A sessions where Bill Craig has spoken over the years, where someone will say, okay, so, so maybe I'm convinced of a deistic God from the Kalam or something, that, or that the science that you've said, Dr. Craig, uh, at least shows me that, that, okay, maybe supreme being who's got a lot of power and whatever. And what's always interesting, Jeff, is that no one ever asks the question, well, how do you get from the Kalam or, you know, basic physics to the God of the Quran or Zeus or Thor. They always say, how do you go from the cosmological arguments to Jesus? And I heard, Rich, without any prompting, I heard Dawkins do this. I know he's talking to a Christian, but he he went on his own. He went from, you know, I could, he, he wasn't saying he was considering deism, but he said, if there's anything that's going to make me a, a, a mild deist it might be the fine-tuning of the universe um he, it wasn't a concession that he was a deist but but then he goes and then he went on to explain basically the the basics of the gospel he went right from the the the, the design argument to the theology to jesus crucified dead buried resurrected so <laughs> it seems like uh even skeptics you know they, they're they're asking us how do we make that connection but by asking the question, I think they've already got somewhat of a connection that the, the Christian God, above all other gods, is the one that is connected to this. Uh, just, just kind of an insight. I don't know if you, in a lot of your Q and A's, do people ask that question? How do you go from a generic cosmological argument to Jesus? Do you get that? 
So I don't personally get that a lot, largely because my argument is not from, I don't typically make an argument of, oh, here we have evidence for a beginning. I generally couch my, my way of articulating that. It's like, okay, here's what the Bible says about creation. Where can we go look and find that what we see in creation, does it align with that? And so I'm explicitly making that connection okay. of, you know, we look for a beginning, we look for uh, an origin of humanity, we look for, uh, you know, things having a purpose, you know, so, so I'm, I'm making that connection explicitly because, uh, you know, I, if you just say, well, there's a God. Now the question is, which God are we talking about? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I also do think that, uh, and, and I, I don't have an answer to this question, except I, you know, I'm starting to think about it and can wrestle with it, is I think there are a lot of things that are just really hard to deal with this in this world. You know, I mean, we got mm-hmm. the, the war in Ukraine going on. we got the pandemic here, you know, across the world. And not only the pandemic, but all the aftermath of the pandemic of, you know, joblessness and high wages and depression and, you know, everything going in there. Um, you've got people that are dealing with, you know, family members who've died or, I mean, there's just all sorts of hard things. And the question is, you know, if God is who he says he is, why is all this going on? Now I do think Christianity has an answer for that. Um, But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's almost like people are asking, okay, uh, I, I, you know, not trying to be as charitable, you know, being charitable with dog and say, saying, okay, even if you give me that God is good or that, that God is there, I, I don't know that I, that God doesn't season to explain or account for what we have and how to, mm. how can this all be if that's the God we're talking about? Yeah. And, you know, maybe, you know, it seems like people are asking these truth questions, but now they're also asking, is God good questions? Mm. And I think, you know, it's not like this is new to Christianity or Christians haven't thought about this, but uh, you know, I think we need to be prepared not only to say, hey, Christianity's true, but here's how it's good, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for if, if you know, one of the ways I would make that connection is, you know, I love science. You know, I ask the question, okay, which worldview says science ought to work? Yeah. Well, when you really get down to it, the one that actually anchors all the philosophical presuppositions you need for science to work, that's Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so when you're out there practicing science, you're acting like Christianity is true, whether you subscribe to the Christian worldview or not. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think Christianity provides a lot of good things, but, you know, it's easy to, there, there's a lot of voices and a lot of narratives out there that say, oh, Christianity can't make any sense of this. or the God you have just doesn't, it doesn't work. And so. Right. Well, there was a, I, I know you probably know Paul Fire Robin, who was a, I think he's a philosopher of science, um, writing back, um, uh, when in a period of time when he they were writing about the monumental discovery of uh, the, the affirmation of the cosmic micro, microwave background radiation, he was writing about this remarkable discovery uh, that was announced right around the same time as the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles. With the, the you know before cell phones there was videotape and this his, this horrible situation unfolded with the LAPD and then the riots. I was living in Los Angeles at the time of the riots, right smack in the middle of everything. It was terrifying. I thought the world was ending. Uh, I was not a Christian at the time. But uh, Fire Robin, in his his essay, I think it's in this book, Tyranny of Science, he's trying to do exactly what you just did, Jeff. He's not a Christian, of course, but he's trying to hold these things in tension together because obviously these are two things that happened in the universe. What does it mean? He's literally trying to make that connection. And uh, I did a little essay. I haven't published it yet, but he his thought made me think, how would I answer 
Paul if he was asking me these questions. Dan, how would you connect these things? And I mused on that for a couple of days, and I just wrote it for myself. But I think I would say this. And it's remarkable, and it's, it's, it's chilling, and I don't say it lightly, and I don't want to sound like I'm saying it just, you know, uh, with, with a flippancy. But, but the, the one who created the cosmic microwave background radiation was treated exactly like Rodney King, that, that the God who, who made the universe came down to us and experienced what Rodney King experienced. And that, if you meditate on that, it makes your skin, it gives you goosebumps because that's how intimately equated God was and is with our suffering. And I think the world is hungry to know that in a way that is beyond the trite superficialities of uh, theodicies that we oftentimes just say so glibly because whether they have some kind of philosophical or argumentative uh, effectiveness, sometimes we don't live through a theodicy. And uh, I myself have, I'm sure you have, we all have been through our own little versions of theodicies and tragedies, as you've explained. And I think that out of those, people really want to know, how did Jesus, how did God get you through that? And, and I think that's where we can meet our culture today. Because, you know, here you and I are dialoguing abstractly uh, from the comfort of our home about these, these astrophysical phenomenon. And, you know, some of my listeners are going, well, so what? How does this apply to me? What, what, what relevance does this have to me? And I think that uh, if you look back when the ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, whatever a culture thought about the cosmology impacted how they thought about themselves. And what do you see, Jeff, in modern secular cosmology today? This emphasis on our dethroning, the Copernican principle, where we're dethroned, insignificant, no one cares, no one's coming, we're alone, we're nothing, we're dust, we're, we're a speck, uh, we're insignificant, the universe, universe wants to eat us for lunch. I can't help but think that, that some of this talk at the popular level about cosmology is really adding to the despair that we're struggling with as a culture because we can't see the heavens. We can't see the stars from Los Angeles anymore. We can't see the stars from Chicago or New York or Texas. Um, and so, but, but, but in the past, the, the heavens were intimately connected with who we are. And, and I think, as you said, the more informed we are about, about, um, about this, about these issues, I think the more robust our faith can be. Because this is, I mean, this is how Genesis connected, you know, when Jesus took Abraham outside, said, count the stars if you were able. Uh, so shall your descendants be. So every time I look up at the stars, I think of God doing the impossible. And I think that's the kind of hope that our world needs today. So what, uh, let me just, uh, we'll wrap up here. Um, encourage our listeners, how, how is your exotic field of astrophysics and cosmology, uh, how, how can this be relevant for us today? How can this be an encouragement to our faith and to, to the world today? Well, I, I loved what you said about, you know, we inevitably move towards our worldview. There's a, a quote, and I'm going to give a paraphrase of the quote, but uh, one of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozier, and talking about yeah. the knowledge of the holy, he goes, give me, tell, let me know completely what a man thinks about God and I can predict where his life will go. You know, mm. and, and he's just basically saying how whatever we think about God, that's the picture we're going to move towards. And so, um, you know, the in part, the answer to the question of how do you deal with all this stuff is like if we get a picture of who God is. I mean, there's you know, think about it. God, the creator of the universe, who has no need for anything in and of himself, exists as a triune God, perfect relationship, perfect harmony, perfect unity, has all knowledge, all power, all everything in need of nothing chose to create us knowing we were going to rebel against him, that he would come and live on earth 
and be subject to the gruesome death of rejection and all the gruesome death that he was. He did that solely to invite us into his fellowship. I mean, there is not a more compelling or powerful story in the world than that. And what we see as we study the heavens is that we see evidence of a very powerful being who created the universe, a very orderly being who created the universe, a very caring being who created the universe, a very good being who created the universe. And ultimately, you know, you trace that through cosmology, through biology, through archaeology, and you see there's great support for what Christianity has said, ultimately culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that not only does Christianity offer the hope of being true, it offers the hope of, wow, this is about the best of all possible worlds you could ever dream. And science is affirming that that picture is correct. Um, it's not proving it's that picture is correct, but it's, it's affirming what God has revealed through creation and through his revelation. And I just love learning and understanding um, in part because the more I understand, the more convinced I am that God is there. It's not like I have to say, well, I've got an answer and I can't push too deep. No, I can push into any subject, dig down into the depths, and there's, I'm still going to find that God is ultimately who he says he is. Right. And I think it offers a hope in this other sense, that whatever else, uh, you know, we, we, we as humans repeatedly put our joy, hope in something else, you know, gathering more money, uh, being able to go to more concerts, wearing better clothes, having more friends, whatever it is. And one of the things that I recognized the other day is that all of those things will ultimately fail because they're finite. But God has put this desire for something more. And the only thing that will satisfy that something more is pursuing him. Mm -hmm. Because I can study God for eternity and I will never exhaust what there is to know. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in Christianity, you have the truth, you have the goodness, you have the, yes, I want that. But it also offers the one thing that will satisfy that desire for, yeah, I want more because God created us to know him more. So I find great hope and encouragement in that, even in the midst of the days where I choose to forget about that and get depressed <laughs> and down by all the stuff that's going on. Yeah, right. Well, one thing for me, Jeff, I I, uh, I have a little spot out here in Texas I drive to. It's a couple hours from my house. It's one of the darkest spots in the continental United States. Uh, there's some spots in Texas that are still pretty pristine in terms of dark sky. So I, I only live a couple hours, but, but I go out there when I can, and it's just it's just so amazing. The stars are so close. It looks like you can pick pick them like fruit off of a tree. But one of the things that for me astronomy has always been, and just 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 stargazing, you know, not even in a technical sense, is uh, the reminder of, of you know Jeremiah that God's new covenant to us. You know, He's promising a new covenant in Jeremiah thirty thirty one. Speaking of Jesus, of course, um, but His covenantal love, His His kessed, His love and mercy, long suffering. Um, the, the heavens, the fixed order, what we might call the laws. Uh, God likens His love and in mercy and long suffering to the he to the to the laws of of the universe, to to the fixed order of the universe. And I love, you know, when we talk about probably one of the biggest theodicies in the Bible is Job's suffering. I mean, God doesn't even give us an answer, right? Um, and, but what does, when God finally does speak, not only is it the longest uninterrupted discourse of the Lord speaking in the Bible, but what does he talk about? Does he mention anything about suffering? He, he goes into an extended discourse about Genesis, uh, about creation. He says, here's, here's, here's what's the problem, Job. You're fixated on something that happened to you. 
and you think you've got, a, you know, Job's friends were like apologists, right? Well, Job, if you do this and you do that, or let me explain God this way or this way, right? They were, everybody's very satisfied in their own perspective of God. Then God shows up and everybody's like, oh, you know, but he starts off with where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Do you fix their rule over the earth? Can you guide the bear with their satellites? You know, they're all rhetorical questions, but they're all about creation. And, and so to me, one of the, one of the wonders of, of studying creation is, is being able to reflect on everything that you've said, that through creation as Christians, by God's spirit, we can understand the metaphors that God has left us with in nature. And uh, that's why James Clerk Maxwell had emblazoned over the door of the Cavendish Laboratory in, in uh, Cambridge, Psalm 111.2, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. And, and studying in the works of the Lord, it's not just trying to figure out the mechanics, right? It's for Christians. It's to understand who our Heavenly Father is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And so, you know, when the Lord was here on the earth, he was using metaphors from nature all the time, seeds, birds, water, bread, you know, sky, everything, weather. Uh, anything that was related to people, he used he used elements of nature to talk about who he is, and uh, so I affirm your your uh, ministry and witness through uh, through astronomy and cosmology. That's why we do this podcast uh, to encourage people to see the Lord through creation. Before we ended our conversation, I asked Jeff how he reconciled what appears to be a conflict of details between standard Big Bang cosmology and the creation accounts of Genesis. As I was wrestling, you know, I kind of wrestle with that issue, you know, because, you know, if you at face value, it kind of looks like, okay, you've got the sun showing up on day four, light on day one. It's like, okay, you know, this just doesn't make sense. How can this be? Um, But I, I, somebody kind of encouraged me, okay, read through, you know, read it, read Genesis. If you're going to look for a scientific accounting of it, read it like a scientific accounting would do, you know, and I don't think Genesis is written as a scientific account, but if God is who he says he is, if he's going to be talking about scientific things, he's going to give us, he's going to put that in the context there. And so, so as I read that, I was like, okay, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where we're talking about evolution or not evolution, inflation and the beginning of the universe. I'm like, okay, that lines up. But then Genesis two goes, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So I'm now no longer out in the cosmos witnessing what's going on down there on earth. The spirit of God, who's revealing this and and inspiring this, is on the surface of the waters. And in that context, God created the heavens and the earth, everything that is, stars, planets, galaxies, everything that's out there. But yet here I am on the surface of the earth, and it's dark. So the sun's out there, but it's dark. Well, okay, day one now is how does the sunlight get to the surface of the earth? Because that's where you get light from. And so it's a clearing of the atmosphere, not a creation of light. Because you notice it doesn't say, and God created light. He said, let there be light. Mm. Um, So now you have the light from the sun penetrating to the surface of the earth. God separates the light from the day, the darkness he calls day, or the light he calls day, and the darkness he calls night. And that was day one. Day two, you have a separation of the waters, waters above, waters below. So now again, on the surface of the earth, you got... The water cycle. I mean, yeah, it doesn't say that, but that sounds a lot. Yeah, so you got this water cycle again. If you don't have the day-night cycle, if you don't have the water cycle, Earth's not going to be inhabitable. And remember the conditions: formless and void, dark covering the Earth, and it was covered in water. And so God's remedying or fixing those things in creation to prepare Earth for humanity. 
Um, so you've got the create, you know, the light and the, the day and the night cycle. You've got light. Now you've got that. Now you've got the water cycle again, separating a structure, and then you've got the the land separated from the waters. So all of that formless and void is now fixed. You or or it's there's the separation. So you've got the things required for life, and then you've got life showing up on the land. You've got the further clearing of the atmosphere on day four, because again, remember we're talking from the surface of the earth. So it's kind of like the cloudy day where I know there's this, there's light up there, but I don't know where it's coming from to the clear day where it's like, ah, that's where it's coming from. You've got uh, now various kinds of animals created and ultimately culminating humanity. So if you read that saying, okay, does this line up? Is there a reasonable way to make it line up? I mean, you can make anything sound stupid depending on how you say about it. <laughs> but if you say, all right, let's be charitable and let's ask the question, do they line up well? Can I apply good scientific principles, good hermeneutic principles, and ask them, do they line up? The question is, yeah. Um, you know, because you just have to recognize, or one of the biggest things for me was recognizing, establishing the frame of the reference for the for the most of Genesis 1 is actually the surface of the earth. Once you get that, it, it lines up quite nicely. And in fact, when you go into Job and talking about how uh, earth's wrapped in a blanket of dark, you know, now you see Actually, this remarkable picture that what being described there actually aligns up very well with our latest scientific discoveries and okay. gives us a lot more to explore and discover. All right. Well, well thank you for that. You, so you, you and uh, Dr. Ross share a similar perspective on the on the day four and the light, uh, uh, the way that, that you guys see it. I, I think Dr. Ross has a similar position where stars yes. appear on day four. They weren't, he suggests they were not fabricated on day four, which I think is something close to his position, but. Uh, it very uh, much is. And, and part of why I think that's the right way to look at it is, you know, if, if you ask most Christians, they'll say, well, what did God create? Well, he created the light on the first day and he created the, the waters. Above. Well, no, maybe he didn't do that. He created the land on the third day. And then you go back and you look and that word for created is only for the cosmos and for certain kinds of animals and for humanity. Everything else, God's use, he's using language that has some sort of process to it. Mm. And when you witness it from the surface of the earth, now the question is, okay, what's the process going on? And I'm not saying this is the explanation. Sure, what I'm you're saying, right, right. Like, hey, I've got this explanation that has GERD humorneutical background to it, as well as good scientific interpretation, and they line up. That's pretty remarkable. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry, including having our staff speak at your church, visit watchman.org. That's watchman.org for more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and other non-Christian ideologies and spiritual practices. That's watchman.org. Mm-hmm.